ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The floods across the east coast of Australia in 2022 have had a devastating effect on people that is still being felt today. Thousands lost their homes, many were displaced and many have had problems with their insurance claims that has compounded the stress and anxiety they'd already been feeling. Today we're going to take a look into an inquiry into how the insurance industry has handled the aftermath of the crisis and many speaking at that hearing today were scathing of their efforts. There are problems that our clients face today that could be addressed by the insurance industry right now with immediate unilateral action, not in six months or three years, right now. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia White, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. Today, a federal parliamentary inquiry looking into how insurance companies responded to the major East Coast floods in 2022 is holding its first public hearing. First up were consumer groups who delivered a damning assessment of the insurance industry's response with the behaviour of assessors and contractors being described as appalling during today's hearing. The Parliamentary Inquiry is examining a submission co-authored by the Financial Rights Legal Centre. The centre provided help to hundreds of people in the wake of those floods and says thousands of people lost their homes. Many faced significant delays in issues in accessing cover and when repairs were provided, some were of very poor quality. They've also discovered systemic underinsurance and highlighted significant emotional trauma, including the breakdown of marriages. Following today's hearing is our reporter in Lismore, Bruce McKenzie. Now, Bruce, this is quite damning testimony from consumer groups of the insurance industry today. And first to to address the hearing was Julia Davis from the Financial Rights Legal Centre. What did she have to say today? Yes, she uh, certainly did not hold back. Um, She talked about her experiences uh, dealing with, uh, I think it was 1,200 complaints that were made to uh, the Financial Rights uh, Legal Centre. She's a senior policy and communications officer there. Um, And look, that's a big number, but can I I throw some other big numbers at you? Um, So this inquiry is looking at four flood events that affected Eastern Australia. The, the, the one that, of course, I'm most familiar with is the one that uh, affected northern New South Wales, the northern rivers area of New South Wales and southeast Queensland. How is this for a figure? That one event alone uh, generated more than 230,000 insurance claims. Wow. And the four events that are being looked at um, by this particular inquiry, which take in, takes in um, Queensland, a lot of parts of New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, more than 300,000 insurance claims, totaling $7.4 billion. That that gives you an idea of how the the scope of this inquiry and when you're dealing with that many cases, how does an industry respond? And the reason I, I draw that to your attention is maybe just to point out that this is just the first day of the public hearing and of course we'll hear the industry response but what we heard today uh, was from consumer groups and yeah as as you say 
they didn't hold back talking about um, the complaints that were brought to their door. Uh, Julia Davis did say, um, of course, that uh, w- when people have a good experience with an insurance company, they don't tend to contact her. And those that do uh, have had the opposite sort of experience uh, and the sorts of behaviour that uh, was getting reported to her, as you say, she did describe as appalling. Well, let's hear what she had to say, particularly about the behaviour of contractors that were rocking up to people's places. And these were contractors that were approved by insurance companies. So she had a lot to say about how they behaved when they arrived to someone's home. Let's have a listen to that. We have just seen example after example, sometimes of appalling behaviour, really rude, aggressive, bullying behaviour where third parties come to a person's house um, and really I'd accuse them of letting their house fall into disrepair or accuse them of, of insurance fraud, basically, or bullying them into accepting cash settlements, um, all kinds of appalling behavior. But even where we don't see appalling behavior, we see instances all the time where assessors will come to the house and say really conflicting things, things that are basically completely opposite to what the insurer has said. That's Julia Davis from the Financial Rights Legal Centre. Now, that centre did make a submission to the parliamentary inquiry today. Bruce, what sort of issues did you hear about that people were facing as they tried to navigate making an insurance claim? So many. Um, But a a lot of people were worried about getting conflicting information. Uh, One of those third party contractors might tell them one thing that might be contradicted by their assessor or it might be contradicted by the insurance company after they get these reports. We also heard that there's a lot of confusion about uh, the the fine print that you find in insurance policies and and what one company might define as uh, flood damage. Uh, another one might define it differently. There's also confusion about, you know, if if you opt out of flood insurance because it's too expensive for your policy, but you still want home and contents. We heard that it was important that you are able to do that. But some insurers, um, if you opt out of flood insurance, that also means that you opt out of insurance against storm or rain damage. So, so many issues. And we also heard that... uh, There's a real need for these companies when they're training their staff to make those staff realise that they're dealing with people who are utterly traumatised and and that these people are not going to behave in a manner that's, I guess, what we'd normally accept. And the fact that, you know, that's completely understandable given, you know, the very roof over their head may may no longer be uh, stable and they've been forced out of their home. And uh, one of the the 34 recommendations made by this coalition of consumer groups, and one of those, of course, was for much better training of uh, staff and contractors. Let's hear what Julia Davis had to say about that. Anyone who's been through a major event like a flood is in a very vulnerable position and anyone who's customer facing, any claims managers, including and, and third party contractors that are going to be dealing with that person needs to have at least some base level of trauma informed training. Now, Bruce, you mentioned under insurance to you know, how big an issue is that the numbers of people who are underinsured? We, we didn't actually get that figure, but we were told that it was a widespread problem. And uh, I mentioned those recommendations. Uh, one of the recommendations is for it to, uh, the onus to be on the insurer to advise the client if they are underinsured, because uh, apparently this is 
and look, I, I would put my, my hand up and say this is probably me and I suspect yeah. it might be many of our listeners. We don't go through each year and go, oh, gee, um, has the insured amount for our home and contents kept up with inflation? You might only do that once every five or ten years, which means for a, a big chunk of that time, you're probably quite financially exposed. And that was definitely um, one of the recommendations that this parliamentary committee uh, will be uh, considering. Another topic that was broached today was the culture of the insurance mm. industry itself. Philippa Eyre from the Consumer Action Law Centre spoke about this and this is what she had to say. We see a lot of um, claims declined on you know spurious grounds um, and it appears from our perspective that it comes from a culture where the first thought for the assessor is how how can I decline this claim, not how can I pay this claim. That's Philippa Eyre from the Consumer Action Law Centre. How much how much did they dip into this, the culture of, of how how do we avoid paying rather than paying up? Yeah, well, when you talk about hundreds and hundreds of complaints, uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, the people that have a good experience don't complain. So there are hundreds of people that are not happy with the ruling that their uh, insurance company has made, or they're not happy with how long uh, things take to get determined. We actually spoke uh, to a couple in our part of the world today, one of my colleagues did, Two years on from that uh, incredible flood that hit the Northern Rivers, they are still in a pitched battle with their insurance company. And, and you know, they, they'd been told just prior to the flood that, that their home was, um, you know, structurally sound. The flood comes and all of a sudden it's reassessed and the insurance company goes, oh, no, yeah, that's not flood damage. That was obviously a problem uh, before the flood. And uh, these people are so frustrated because they've got paperwork here um, showing that their house had been inspected prior to the flood and yet they find themselves two years on um, just waiting for some sort of uh, resolution. And you you would imagine that that sort of scenario is playing out for hundreds and hundreds of people. Hence, uh, we've got this inquiry. Bruce, you've been covering this flood and the ongoing recovery right since the beginning and it's the community you live in. And... Um, how are people going with getting their homes rebuilt? Overall, really, if you if you step back, where is the community really, now? Yeah, it's a really, really slow process. And, and we're coming up on two years. If you walk around um, the suburbs of Lismore, for example, you will still see dozens of homes with scaffolding uh, up around them. Um, so many people are still waiting for repairs. There's still a desperate shortage of uh, the tradespeople needed to do that work. Um, I, I think that, you know, in the wake of that flood, everyone was told that it would be a, a long and slow and in some cases painful recovery. And it's certainly uh, proving to be exactly that. Today was a public hearing and it was broadcast online. Do you think people were tuning in? That's uh, difficult to say. I, to be honest, I've been so deep into it, I haven't even been able to do the usual uh, check of social media to see if there's uh, any kind of response. Uh, I know that the online story that uh, I did got posted fairly recently 
and I imagine that will be hitting the ABC socials. So I'll be checking to see whether uh, people are responding to that and whether they uh, checked in themselves. But there, there's, it, it's pretty easy to do if people are interested. There is, uh, you know, the the Australian Parliament website. You can pretty easily uh, navigate your way um, to the page where you need to click and get the link to watch it. And so this inquiry will continue for this week and importantly next week we'll be hearing over the course of a couple of days from the major uh, insurance groups and um, the Insurance Council of Australia, which will uh, no doubt have uh, a fairly different take on things. I'd imagine, and the you know, there's a lot of discussion in the community about insurance and um, where, where people stand, how they feel about it. Is there a lot of anger about the insurance industry in and around Lismore? There certainly was in the wake of uh, the flood. Uh, I think it's insurance has been such an issue here for so long that people are in some ways a little bit resigned. It's the people that perhaps thought they were covered and then it didn't live up to their expectation. They're the people that were genuinely angry. But there are so many people in this community and I suspect other communities, there are so many that are built on floodplains, unfortunately, where flood insurance just isn't even a factor. It's so costly. And that's what we have to remember. That figure that I told you, um, $7.4 billion and 300,000 claims just from these four flood events in 2022, that, that in some ways only tells a little bit of the story because the damage was so much more widespread and so many of the people that lost pretty much everything they owned didn't have insurance because it was too costly. So if anything, those mind-boggling figures, as I say, as mind-boggling as mm. they are, they don't even tell the whole story. This is just day one of this parliamentary inquiry and there will be a lot more to come. Bruce McKenzie, thanks for bringing us to up to date on Australia Wide. You're welcome. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia Wide. Like, say, the swimming carnival, I can tell them about how, like, the races are. And as well, um, there's a big carnival, like, where we show our house colours. So you've never done that before? Um, no, not really, no. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. Remember, you can get in touch with this programme anytime you like. AustraliaWide.radio at abc.net. .au is the email. That's australiawide.radio at abc.net.au. Almost one in three Australians report feeling lonely, according to a 2023 report by not-for-profit organisation Ending Loneliness Together. And people are particularly vulnerable to loneliness when living in the country. Isolated is exactly how Andrea Ferris felt when she moved to the small Queensland country town of Kilkeven in 2020. And now she's leading the charge to change that. And she spoke to our reporter, Grace Whiteside. They're also just lovely to hang out with and horses are very calming. Horses are like family for Andrea Ferris. Some of my recovery is just walking. I just have to walk and I'll often take one of the horses with me and we'll just have a good chat along the way. They became friends and companions and almost a replacement for human contact when Andrea and her husband moved to Kilkeven, three hours north of Brisbane, just before COVID lockdowns came into effect. It was at the start of COVID and it was very quiet. Um, but there was no socialisation at the time and uh, I had to work from home. 
So we were building a house and I was working from home and we didn't get a chance to really connect with the community at that time because of that. The duo were drawn to the picturesque country village for its annual Great Horse Ride and its proximity to the Bicentennial National Trail, which stretches 5,000 kilometres from Cooktown in northern Queensland to Hillsville in Victoria. But just as they were saddling up to ride the trail, disaster struck. So the day before we were to leave on our trip, I was a bit wound up about going and a bit nervous about leaving. And uh, I was obviously emitting some of this nervous energy and I stood next to the grey horse and went to catch him and he stood on my foot and spun around and broke it. So that was the day before we were to leave. About 12 months later, we were preparing to go again and I had a little fall off that same horse. He was spooked and I had a little fall. It wasn't a great fall, but it set forward a chain of events of investigation of, into my spine and some issues with my back. And so I had a disc extrusion and then I had one surgery to try and repair that and it didn't work. And then I ended up having a double spinal fusion, which is quite a major operation. Ms Ferris didn't expect that after moving to a new town, she would be stuck at home with a slow recovery. She didn't know anyone and didn't have anyone to talk to, so she decided to take on a new project, leading the charge to help new residents and herself become connected with the community. She organised an event specifically for new community members to meet each other and long-time locals. Kilkeven Connect 4600, which is the postcode here in Kilkeven and Surrounds, was a huge success. I would have been happy if 10 people showed up, but we had 45 new residents come. And I was just over the moon and terribly, terribly grateful for people who came out. If you think about it, the population of Kilkeven is only somewhere a little over 700. So if you think about the people that actually came... That's, you know, quite extraordinary, really. We could be up for 10% of the population here is actually new here within the last five years. Recent research from not-for-profit organisation Ending Loneliness Together show almost one in three Australians report feeling lonely, more so in regional areas. There's some conflicting reports that if you're living in rural or more regional towns, you're more close-knit. But if you're a new transport, a new transplant from the city to a, a community that's rural and remote, it might take you some time to connect with your community over there. Dr Michelle Lim, the Chief Executive and Scientific Chair of Ending Loneliness Together, suggests people dive into their new surroundings. Getting to know your community and being friendly and being open um, will yield rewards, but this is something that is done over a period of time as opposed to immediately. Back on the farm at Kilkeven, Andrea doesn't expect to see results overnight, but she's committed to staying on the trail. It certainly does take time, and I think it also takes uh, some confidence. It seemed to me from talking to people that the people who are having the most success fitting into their change of lifestyle to a rural, small rural town were more the ones that lived in town that walked their dog around and sort of met people as they were strolling around town. But the ones that that made the effort to go and join something. Kilkeven local Andrea Ferris, ending that story from Grace Whiteside. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the race courses were. 
I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, just, yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio. The most common type of litter to be found in the ocean is plastic and every year it's estimated 14 million tonnes of it ends up in the sea, choking marine life and washing up on the shorelines. Now, Esperance in WA South has some of the most pristine beaches in the world, but still lumps of plastic often wash up on its gorgeous white beaches. So when mother and daughter Michelle and Sam Crisp came across a mountain of tangled fishing gear on their local beach, they decided to do something about it. Our reporter in Esperance, Emily Smith, spoke to them at their local beach. Esperance is world famous for its pristine beaches, but it's not immune from plastic pollution. If you look closely, there's lots of um, hard plastics of all different scales, so microplastics and then larger ones. Um, and we'll come out here sometimes and spend hours just in a 10 metre square ra- kind of radius. Local mother and daughter Michelle and Sam Crisp come to 10 Mile Lagoon almost every day to pick up rubbish. And it just goes to show, even in pristine Esperance, um, this is a global issue, the plastics issue. It's, yeah. it's not just, um, you know, some of us look at places like Indonesia and say it's a dreadful situation there, but we still have it on our beaches here. And it's not just from overseas, it is our local um, plastics as well. But one day last year, they got more than they'd bargained for. Yeah, so a couple of months ago we came out here. This is one of our favourite beaches to collect um, marine debris. Uh, lots of it seems to collect along here because of the ocean currents and wind and stuff. Um, and we did the classic scan of the beach from up the top of the stairs and couldn't really see much down there. Um, and then here's this huge whale carcass-sized beach of, um, piece of marine debris down the end of the beach. So it's probably from a long-line fishing vessel out in the West Indian Ocean, out near Africa. Yeah. So it was huge amounts of various sized rope. Um, so from maybe, I don't know, three centimetre diameter right down to quite skinny stuff. The community rallied to help get it off the beach. It's been a real community effort to get it off the beach because we very quickly realised that it was mm. more than a two-person job. <laughs> um, so um, we got in touch with the Esperance Community Arts and they coordinated with Dullurac Rangers. And Dullurac Rangers have done a huge job of getting it off the beach and they took probably, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of of it off the beach and then we got on um, made contact with Surf Life Saving Club and all their volunteers came down and put in a huge effort and they dragged it, we undid it manually off the beach and dragged it manually up these stairs which are huge and yeah it was such an awesome effort to get Mm. it off the beach. But they didn't want to send it to the tip. Oh definitely super important not to just put the five tonnes of marine debris directly into landfill. Um, That's just contributing to a different kind of issue in a different landscape. Instead, they work to transform the marine debris into something new. This is an ideal opportunity to make it a community project, Mm. arts project. So we're making... We've had um, a girl from Cocos come down through Esperance Community Arts, Jolie, and she's given us basket weaving skills, and so we've been feverishly making baskets and we've been making Sam's made a gorgeous hat and we make earrings and so but we've put the call out to all the community to make anything they want an art any sort of art piece 
After months of work, an exhibition has just opened, featuring the beautiful baskets, earrings, ornaments and wall hangings made by the group. The community was impressed. Well, when I walked through that door and I saw that colour, I thought, wow, this is the Esperance colours. We all call it the Esperance colours. And it's really showed itself there. I think the, it just looks spectacular. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's a real wake-up call to us all to think about the rubbish that we create or drop and what you can make out of nothing, really, just bits of string. So I think it's a great effort, yeah. $1,500 was raised on opening night, which will go back into protecting the world's oceans. The intention is that we've chosen Tangaroa Blue, who's an awesome not-for-profit, but um, is dedicated to removing and preventing marine debris. So the idea is that all the sales, profit from the sales, will go to Tangaroa Blue, yeah. so that no one profits financially from the rope, and the rope goes back in a loop to help the environment. Mm. Michelle and Sam says it was a great project to be a part of. I think it's super inspirational. Um, quite often environmental issues these days can be quite overwhelming, whether it's climate change, um, just the scale they're happening at is like so overwhelming. So to have a local issue like this um, and quite a simple, feasible solution to it, uh, it's so epic to have the whole community um, engage. Emily Smith, who spoke to Michelle and Sam Crisp, who founded the 10 Mile Collective to raise awareness and money for the world's oceans. And that is Australia-wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. Listen.